Welcome to In Any Event, the show about events for event planners. Brought to you by EventSquid, registration and management software that thinks like you and works like eight of you. On today's show, we've got a terrifically fun guest. For those of you who have been in the industry a while, you probably know her as the operator of TheMeetGuide.com. She's an expert educator in the event and meeting planning field, and she speaks all over the world. Canada, Mexico, Dominican Republic, China, Thailand, you name it. And our guest is there. And she's fond of saying that people come to her classes or speaking events not to hear about her, but to hear what she has to say. And so we are going to hear what she has to say right now. Please welcome Joanne Dennison. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate having me. I I want you to tell the audience uh, that doesn't know you how long you've been at this and sort of how you participate in the industry so that when we get into some of the industry prognostications and and some of the things, the nuances that are going on in the industry, they'll understand where you're coming from. Okay, sounds good. I actually started out in a more non-traditional way. I started out as a college administrator and even as an undergrad and everything like that, I was doing events. And so I went into college administration, basically in the student life version of the world and loved it, ended up leaving the field much to my surprise and started my own meeting and event planning company, partially because I didn't know what else to do. Not a great business plan, trust me on that one, but uh, it evolved for, so for about 10 years, I had my own small meeting and event planning firm, started out doing personal events, moved to, you know, nonprofits, small and mid-sized business events, and then eventually rolled into uh, speaking and teaching and writing and advising on them. And uh, been doing that now, actually, 20 years. So (laughs) it's, um, yeah, I guess it's a sign of age, but it's okay. That's been my evolution, three different parts of my life, and they've all come full circle, and I'm back in education just in a whole different way. When somebody attends one of your events, why do they go? What are they looking to get and what what do they get? Well, there's the people who find me more by accident at a conference where I'm speaking at. And then there's the people who more deliberately seek me out because for about 20 years, I have been teaching as part of my business, preparing people for the CMP exam, Certified Meeting Professional Exam. And that has become definitely a huge part of why people in the industry know me. Um, I'm rather an outlier in some of my philosophies. I'm also, I know that's a shock to you. And also I'm, there's only a few people who teach it as part of their business as paid instructors, paid teachers. And I'm one of the longest longevity gives you some, some exposure, I guess, (laughs) but that's what people come seeking me for is, um, I have a very different way of approaching it, not better, not worse than anyone else, just different. And a lot of people find that that's a good click for them. So outlier, give me a a philosophy, for example, that would run contra to mainstream views in, in events. Well, concerning the the certification specifically, I guess it's the educator at heart that I have is to some people, the CMP is just three letters. And I think that's true for a lot of certifications and designations. Whereas when people come to work with me, I need them to understand 
that I actually want them to learn something. I want them to learn to create better meetings and events. I want them to learn how to use that to make their organization better. And I want them to learn how to use it to move their career forward. So I have a heavy emphasis on the education part and applying it, not just cramming any way you can to get the three letters after your name. Do you think that there's a specific type of person who makes a better meeting planner than maybe another type of person? Are there traits that you tend to see again and again? Oh, one standard joke is we're all fanatical list makers. Drive anyone who lives with us up the wall because we make lists in all parts of our life, not just work. You know, very detail-oriented. I used to say that to a lot of us, OCD and anal are compliments. And they are because that's what we do. We're we're very detail-oriented. We think thoroughly. We want to plan everything, sometimes to a fault. <laughs> so so planning is a destiny, not a destination. Yeah, I, I'd say so. And it, it's never ending. That's the thing. Um, you you I think a good planner they're not just thinking about this event. They're thinking what one of the things I talk about, including in my classes, if we're going to create a financially sustainable event, we can't just think of this year. We have to, we all are really good at looking at meeting history or event history. So, you know, let's say looking three years back or more, but also we've got to think of this year, not just as this year, but one of three years in a process. In other words, what are we putting in place today to build next year better, to build the year after that better, et cetera. And we don't always, we tend to think very focused, like this is the beginning of this event. This is the end of this event. Now we move on to another one. And then we repeat it the same next year, but we are not really good on the continuity part a lot of the time. Interesting. And and that has, that has to go to retention, right? How are we going to get people to come back? Unless you're Maybe you're planning internally meetings that are just going to happen on their own. Would you say that most planners really need to pay attention to the entrepreneurial part of planning so that they can retain those attendees for next year and the year after? Well, I think there's a couple of thoughts there. One, I teach very much from the perspective that the attendee is the most important stakeholder, because if they're happy, if you meet the attendee's needs and expectations, it kind of rolls into every other stakeholder being happy. You know, if you take care of them, and I, I teach from an angle, what I call sit in the attendee's chair, which is built very much around Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But, you know, you talked about the corporate internal meetings. Those are what I call the register or be fired meetings. So, you know, you think that a planner doesn't really have to do much except like, here it is, like you have to come. So this is good. But I don't agree with that because I think one, again, it goes back to that. How do we make our organization better? So we should be trying to create uh, meetings and events where our attendees, whether they're required to come or choose to come, walk away with something. You know, one of the questions I always pose to people is, what do we want people to think or do differently when they leave our meeting or event? I think that's a very important question to answer. And when you look at corporal internal required meetings, let's say sales meetings, one of the easiest examples to use, 
salespeople, not that I'm a good one, but the people I have met who are phenomenal salespeople, they are very driven by sales and to do better and meet or exceed their goals and quotas and everything. And if you do not give them the tools to do that in those internal meetings, they will go find another organization, I think. But if we don't provide the environment for whoever to you know, be better at their internal meetings, they will go find it. That will be part of why they choose to go work for another organization. This is about creating more ROI. Even if it's the same people coming every year, it may not be about growing the number of people that attend, but it is about growing both the attendee and the organization's return on investment. So, so here, I'll make a left turn. What what are some worst ideas in events that are floating around these days. It could be pre-COVID, but this has nothing to do with that necessarily, but there's some pretty bad ideas that keep getting repeated. (laughs) What are you seeing? Well, you know, actually to pull an example that uh, to me has been very prevalent during COVID is the idea that I, I watched people the first few months, but it's still going on. I talked to someone in the past couple of days that's still going through this. You cannot take what was designed as a face-to-face meeting and throw it up on a virtual platform. You just can't. And that's what every a lot of people, I shouldn't I should never say everyone, but a lot of people try to do. Like, oh, we'll just throw them in a in a breakout room on a platform and we're good to go. And what I have been really advising people to do is go back to the initial goals and objectives of every meeting and event you're doing and saying, okay, these are still the goals and objectives, but we need to redesign how we're going to be producing that. And, you know, I think that's really, really important. You cannot throw up what was supposed to be face-to-face on a screen. You just can't. And if I hear one more time about, well, we can't have presentations over 20 minutes. Everyone has Zoom fatigue. You know what? They have fatigue when they're face-to-face in the meetings. Get good presenters who have quality information and it can go on for five hours. And this idea that it's, you know, it's technology that's causing the problem. No, it just may be more prevalent because you see people turn their cameras off. You don't see them when they're face-to-face texting on their phone or playing solitaire, you know. And also related to that is I see them not reworking their budgets. You know, one of the things I talk a lot about is zero-based budgeting and the need for it when you have a first-time event or you have a major change in your event. Going from face-to-face to virtual is a major change in your event. And instead of trying to, you know, push around your budget and, well, if we do this, if we do that, no, you really have to sit down and do it again from scratch and build it from the start. And I think it will actually lessen the stress that a lot of people are going on if they approach those two thoughts as they, as they take more and more virtual. So, so I want to hit on the two things that you said. Sure. Uh, the first thing is the attention span. And mm-hmm. I, I was at an event in Edmonton in December, mm-hmm. and I was backstage with the uh, two other speakers who were about to go on. And mm-hmm. I was asking them about, doesn't it irritate you when you see people on their phones in the audience? And one of the speakers said, oh, we expect, you know, 15% of the people will be looking at their phones and call it naivete uh, or whatever. 
but I found that outrageous. I, I found it outrageous that the speakers tolerate it. And I think the event planners even further removed from that in their selection of speakers, and maybe some are and some aren't, uh, but, but I think that's a big deal. I think that's really emblematic of where we are in society today, but you're the first person I've heard talk, cut to the core of the issue, which is bring people in who are gonna keep people's eyeballs on them. And that takes work. It does. And not only that, but whether it be face-to-face again or virtual, and here's another one my soapbox is just a sidebar for a minute, but I think it ties in with the point is I am so tired of people saying, you know, we have to do face-to-face meetings. We have, it's our job to do face-to-face meetings. I disagree. I think anyone who's involved in the meetings and events industry, our job is to create excellent meetings and events not excellent face-to-face, not excellent virtual, not excellent hybrid, excellent meetings and events, no matter what platform or or setting or obstacle we have to overcome. That's our job. And I feel like people are losing that. They're focusing so much. And trust me, I want face-to-face meetings and events to come back. I, I don't think there's anyone in the industry except someone who maybe discovered they used to travel too much, who don't want face-to-face meetings to come back, at least as an option. But that's not what we're supposed to do. Our job is to create excellent meetings and events. So when I look at, you know, what you just said, it is, it's about the speaker. It's about the topic. It's making sure you're meeting the needing the attendees expectations. Like what are they coming for? What, how are they looking to be changed? Find the right people. If it's a face-to-face meeting, how are you setting up the room? How are you setting up the screen? This all again ties back to Maslow and what I have affectionately tagged the, the sit in the attendees chair. If people are physically uncomfortable, too cold, hungry, the chair is uncomfortable. They can't see, they can't hear. They check out because their body will make them check out. And that's even before you come to, is the speaker any good or is he or she to point to 45 PowerPoint slides and say, I know you can't read this, but why are you putting something up that I can't read? All those things to me have said, you know, I know you can't see, I know you can't hear. I know the PowerPoint is overwhelming. So therefore I'm really actually telling you the material isn't worth looking for. Right. And it's, it's speech 101, right? It's, it's high school speech class. Don't use visual aids unless they aid in your presentation. And, and don't read them. And <laughs> don't read them. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, it's a lost art and everybody has to be a presenter. And I've noticed that the level of energy of the presenters now who are working Zoom is lower than if they were in the room. And you could understand that the people aren't right in front of you. And most people simply do not have training at talking to a dime sized camera and not getting any feedback. So I think it, I think there's an extra burden on speakers to be able to captivate the audience in such a way that they're not going to check out, look at their phone or do whatever they're doing on the computer screen, which is right in front of them. You know, that's interesting what you say about the energy drop, because, you know, Ashley Cecil said to me months ago, who I know we're going to mention, 
And I've noticed in the last few I have been to, I have never been someone who liked virtual presentations. I think webinars, I I, I can count on one hand how many webinars I've been to, true webinars, and I have only agreed to do two because I hate them so much, you know, before COVID and everything. But what I'm noticing is that so many presenters are sitting down to do their Zoom or whatever platform they're using, you know, go to meetings. They're sitting down. I would, you know, occasionally I do sit down for part or all of a presentation if I'm trying to make a point. But your energy automatically drops. And why would they present if they were face-to-face sitting down? I doubt it. I really doubt it. They need to get up on their feet. And that will help a lot. Unless they want it to be that very conversational fireside chat and that's okay if that's appropriate but like you said if their energy is dropping maybe not maybe not i i can tell you for me and i spend and you know this i spend a lot of time doing presentations and mm-hmm. i have a standing desk and i right. up. i don't like sitting down because of that it's uh, it is a different it, it is completely different from the, the energy perspective. And I wonder as an event host, if the event host can say, I'm, ne- I'm going to need you to stand up for your presentation and just make that a requirement, certainly a request of their speakers. Do you think that would be out of bounds? No, I don't. And the thing is, you can move your computer around pretty easily, whatever kind of, even if you don't have an external camera or something like that. I mean, when I first did my first one in, or, you know, first week of April, it was my laptop with the built-in camera sitting on a bookshelf. And I don't even think I had a separate mic yet at that point. But it was interesting because in that one, I actually started sitting in like a I'll call it a bar chair for lack of, you know, the higher chairs, because I was telling a story that I I wanted people to focus on. And then I stood up for almost all the rest of it. But I did that specifically to do something. But if I could do that with my laptop on top of a bookcase with nothing external, certainly other people can too. Right. And so you've kind of led us nicely down the path to where I wanted to talk a little bit about production of Mm -hmm. an event. It, It doesn't just have to be uh, somebody sitting in their kitchen presenting, especially if it's a sole presenter for an event or maybe one or two. Tell us a little bit about what you did, and you may do this for all of your events, in terms of enhancing the production of your presentations. Well, it's kind of interesting to look at the evolution you know, of what I did, because like I said, this first one in April, so we're like three weeks into the pandemic and I've agreed to do this and it is from my living room. And, you know, like I said, it was bare bones. And then I did two more and by one of them, I had a a mic that attached to my shirt. So my fourth one though, was the one where you and I uh, ended up partnering And that was when we did my class from AVFX out of Boston, which is a technology AV production firm. And ironically, they had started building before the pandemic hit a studio in their 
facilities. I mean, obviously they had no idea how, how much of it. And now they have two because of what's happened. But I got to be one of the first people to do that. So to go into a studio that was professionally done with professional lighting of all different kinds. And it was really cool because the lighting guys like were changing the colors every day to go with what I had on, which I was a little slow to catch on to, but it was cool, you know, and, and the people, because everyone who was attending is in the meetings industry, they all picked up on all of this, you know, you know, I'm in a studio, I've got my flip charts, which I'm infamous for, not because I can't use PowerPoint, but I don't want to use PowerPoint. And, you know, all this professional lighting, I had at least three cameras, they had two side ones and a a front one and a fantastic, you know, lighting and sound crew and production. And of course, handling the stuff going out, we live streamed that one. And honestly, it was a little intimidating. I mean, I've done some stuff on TV before on, you know, small, not like, you know, anything anyone would really necessarily know about, but, you know, local news, things like that. But uh, it was just very interesting to be in that. And I think for me to have my first virtual class, I mean, I've been teaching this class in some variation for 20 years. And so for my first full class to be there, It was a little overwhelming and intimidating, but on the other hand, I felt like they had my back because we didn't even have any kind of platform yet, like Zoom to do my class. I mean, that's how how new it all was. So to know that ABFX and Cecil and, and the rest of the team there had my back took so much stress off of me because I really didn't have the quality of equipment I really needed at that point. Like I said, didn't have any kind of accounts to throw it out there. And so for me doing a first virtual class, which I was already anxious about, uh, you know, changing what I always did, you know, that's uncomfortable. But knowing that they were with me was so tremendously helpful. And from the attendees' perspective, the virtual attendees' perspective, mm-hmm. It, it just felt more professional, uh, it, you know, and I sat sat in on those, a, a few of those, and it, it just did feel like a more polished presentation. So if you, if you do have an event and you have access to studio locally, that's something you might want to reallocate in your budget, as you were suggesting before, something to consider to bring up the quality of the presentation. And what do you think of pre-recorded videos? Oh, to be used at like a meeting or a conference? Yeah. Oh, you know, so I'd never thought of that, to be perfectly honest. To me, if we were going to do virtual meetings, it was going to be someone was live streamed or Zoomed or whatever and be actually speaking to me. So in August, I attended my first multi-day conference and that's what I expected. And I was shocked because the very first opening keynote speaker was recorded and edited. And she was excellent, but ironically, her theme was on fear and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And she had an edited video. And then I saw, and it just like did not sit well with me. And then I saw one of the next keynotes his was recorded, but it wasn't edited. So at least when I was watching it, I felt like it was really happening that moment. 
And that's, as I went through that conference, I realized how opposed I was, to be honest, to recorded. I can go watch a recording anytime. If I'm attending a conference, I'm going to assume it comes with all the flaws and, and, you know, screw ups that a live conference does. Someone clearing their throat, someone stumbling over their words. That's what makes us human. I can watch a edited and produced video any day. Why do I have to go to that conference? If you're going to try to do your event on virtual and you can't have the same frame of mind to say, I'm going to take my event, move it from live to virtual and then tape it all because you could do that. You could create a series over 30 days and then just have a video library. And as you say, big deal. That's not an event. And, and so I, now it's one thing to record the live presentation and make it available afterwards, but maybe 10 days afterwards so that there's some value to you paying up right now and attending right now. And yeah, for example, that conference, it wasn't available. Those recordings weren't available to anyone else until 30 days later. And, and I can also understand like there was a glitch where the one, maybe the only person who was doing a live keynote for it, something went wrong. And luckily they were, you know, quick on their feet and they switched to a keynote from another year that had been very popular. I happen to have seen it. I've seen him speak a couple times, but, you know, I thought that was good backup. So I can see maybe having a backup recorded in case something happens that you pull it out, but to use it as your main thing, because here's the thing, if, if our meetings and events are supposed to be about engagement, it's very difficult to engage with the recording. <laughs> no kidding. Right. You know, so, and the thing is, it, people are like, yeah, but what if something goes wrong? Well, heck, the reality is things go wrong at live face-to-face conferences, but that sometimes is actually what makes them cool and real. And the speakers seem like real human beings. And so, you know, so they're struggling through this too. And all of us are challenged with whatever technical problems it is. So have a backup, have a risk plan, have a whatever, but, you know, risk it, take it live, figure out how that person can talk in the moment and clear their throat and reach for a glass of water and have the graphics go a little spastic. And, you know, I I think to me, especially now, it would make us all feel like, oh, okay, yeah, we are all in this together. They are not so perfect that things don't happen to them. And I think that image of a lot of keynoters is frequently given. I I like that. And and speaking of the realism, Mm -hmm. we've had some of our clients inquire about whether we do and we don't these sort of second life 3D worlds where you can wander through an animated. Oh, the avatars. And click on, yeah, with avatars and click on booths. Mm -hmm. The exhibitors, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? No, I've heard a mixture of things. I've heard ones, not so much with the avatars. I don't, I'm not sure, you know, I remember maybe about 10 years ago when avatars really kind of were a thing and people were looking at how they were using them because I was even looking at using them for some training demonstration of things. But I think, you know, the ones that are using more of the breakout rooms where you go and you visit people at their booth and you see things and I don't know. I guess I kind of feel like the last thing we need is more non-people. 
<laughs> and, you know, avatars are cute on my bitmojis or whatever. But at this point, I think we're kind of craving human faces. It, it, and with it, as many layers removed as possible. We One of our clients tried this and they were offering gift cards to go into the booths. And right. nobody went. Nobody, and nobody went? No. They didn't even go in when they were bribed. And, wow. And what's interesting is I, I, I've been saying this for over a year, even before COVID. Mm-hmm. If you have to bribe somebody to go do something, what value is in it when they get there? Because they're doing it for the prize, not for the engagement. On both sides, is, is it really worth it? You might get a random match. But then the 3D booth thing and some of the technology around it really just puts the attendee in the position of being in a live chat and if you've ever done live chat support before, you know that even if you're talking to the attendant, that attendant is talking to three other people. So mm-hmm. you don't you don't feel like you're getting talked to properly. And so I've always had a thing about it. And I just wondered what you thought about it. Yeah, I think the things I'm hearing about exhibit booths and exhibit rooms or, you know, is you actually getting to meet someone? It, it not face-to-face in person, but at least you see faces and you, someone can hold a product or someone can show something or someone, you know, again, engagement, 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 engagement. I believe that engagement, no matter pretty much any area you're talking about in business and certainly in meetings at events, I mean, we all know this in marketing too, but engagement is what brings ROI. I mean, whether you call it customer service, whether you talk, you know, it's engagement. How do we engage with each other? And if we do it well, it creates ROI for both parties involved. Yep. We're running to the end of the show. And I wanted to ask you uh, your opinion on the rush to be the first event to go back live that's Mm -hmm. going on here in this country. Oh, it's going on more than this country, but the others seem to have either their countries truly are in a different place than the United States, or they came to the realization that it's not going to work. You know, as you've watched some of the big ones like IMAX and, you know, GBTA and and even CES, which isn't our industry per se, meetings and events industry, but obviously it's one of the largest meetings and events held in the U.S. So when they decided to go virtual, I thought, people, pay attention. You know, they did not make that decision lightly. But yeah, there seems to be, and I mean, no disrespect to the people in our industry who are out what I feel pounding about, we've got to go back to -to face-to-face events and look how safe they are and you can fly and you can eat and you can sit and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the reality is, is most people can't even cross a state line without having to do quarantine. And, you know, so to get people even out of their state, I just made a decision myself not to travel to another state to speak at a conference because it would mean me having to file papers. It would mean when I came back, I would have to quarantine for 14 days. And if I violated it, it was a $500 a day fine. Wow. And I th- and that's not, you know, there are some states that have that. And the, the list of states changes like daily, like you could be on a trip and a safe versus a not safe in your home state's, you know, point of view could change while you're gone. 
And so I, for a long time, I was talking about regional meetings, you know, because that was kind of what we did after 9-11 when people didn't want to travel and everything like that. But now even regional meetings are challenging because of crossing the state lines. It's almost like you have to stay in state, follow the state guidelines on everything, mask, whatever, to not get caught in the quarantine traps. Because also there's a lot of people who would have to quarantine if they went into a state for a meeting. I've talked to meeting planners who canceled for that reason. They would be going into a state and everyone would have to quarantine for 14 days before they left. Well, who's going to pay for that 14 days? So, you know, this whole we've got to, we've got to, we've got to, everyone wants it. Do I believe there are a lot of safeguards in place? Absolutely. But I also know I've talked to a number of planners, especially corporate planners, that their whole company has been grounded through the end of Q2. I mean, for any kind of travel, not just meetings and events. So it's not the meeting planner's decision. It is way out of their decision making. They have been told. So they know they're not planning any face-to-face events until at least Q3 and Q4 of next year. And I had one meeting planner who had to turn, she pushed to turn a medical related meeting that was going into a high risk area into a virtual just, I don't know, a month or two ago. And she texted me that day. She says, I feel like I have failed the industry. She says, I feel so guilty because I took it virtual. (laughs) That's sad. That's sad because, again, that goes back to our job is to create wonderful meetings and events no matter how we do it. But the fact that a planner with all the additional stress that they're going to of learning how to produce virtual events, how to do all this, feel guilty because they tried to protect their attendees, their presenters themselves from getting sick. I I, I'm really struggle with the fact that people are not listening to that message. And that is the topic of an entirely separate show. <laughs> but before we leave, sure. I want to let all of the listeners know that Joanne is hosting her next CMP training class, November 17th through the 20th. Yes, virtual. And Joanne, give us the rest of the details if they want to attend. How do they register for that? First of all, you can attend even if you're not working toward your CMP. It is very heavy education oriented as to how to be better. But they can go to my website, The Meat Guide. It's also on a lot of the social media. And uh, it's a 16-hour class, four hours over each of the four days. And if they have any questions, we've got a pretty extensive FAQ on the on the event squid website <laughs> registration page. <laughs> and uh, always glad to answer any questions about CMP as a whole or the class in particular. Very good. I hope our listeners will journey over there. Those classes are well worth both the time and the investment. Uh, you will walk out even with one or two nuggets will be well worth it. And as Joanne likes to measure things, your ROI will be through the roof. Joanne, thank you for joining us today. You've been delightful and informative and as always entertaining. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to talk with you. In any event is brought to you by Event Squid. If you're running a conference, meeting, training, or any other type of event, visit eventsquid.com to learn about how our software can help you manage everything from registration to promotion and virtual event organization. Eventsquid, 
thinks like you, works like eight of you. Also, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and let your planner colleagues know what the new squids on the block are doing. If you know of a guest we should have, please visit eventsquid.com and click the podcast menu item for more information. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. We're planning on it. <laughs>